welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. I'm joined today with Betsy Corcoran, the CEO and co-founder of EdSurge. EdSurge is a leading and award-winning news and resource site on EdTech entrepreneurship. She is known as the rock star in education, and I'm so excited to talk to you today. Prior to EdSurge, Betsy has written for Forbes, for Washington Post, Scientific American, and many others. She has appeared on Forbes, on Fox, on CNBC, and on NBC, and I'm so grateful that she's appearing here today on our interview series. So thank you, Betsy. Welcome. Thank you so much. Well, until recently, you were the CEO and co-founder of EdSurge, and I know you recently just stepped down from that role. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what was the challenge that you saw that caused you to start and found that organization? And also, what's the challenge that you see coming next that has caused you to leave, and, and what's your next endeavor? Okay. <laughs> That's a lot. It's a big question. question. <laughs> That's a big question. So tell me everything about your life in one paragraph. Um, well, let's see. So um, literally a decade ago, I decided to leave Forbes. It was the end of the previous economic downturn. And um, I had one of those moments where I was really interested in trying to do something that both connected with my kids, who at that point were in elementary school, and was really meaningful. So I I left Forbes really without having a clear sense of what I might do in education, but pretty sure that there was there was something there. And I spent a year uh, actually doing IT support in some of the local schools. I'm here in Burlingame as well, and I learned a lot about why technology wasn't really working. For educators. And it wasn't that they were reluctant to use technology. It was that it really wasn't designed for the use cases, the applications, um, and really the needs of teachers and students. And uh, so at the end of that year, um, I started EdSurge because I thought there was a real need to connect two communities, the people who were starting to build the technology and the people who ultimately were going to use the technology. I've always thought that there is a role for tech in education, but it ultimately has to be uh, at the service of teachers and students, learners. So we started to try to talk about kind of these two communities, and we tried to bridge that gap. And uh, over the next 10 years, we um, I think we played a role in helping technologists better understand what educators were doing. We did this in lots of different ways. We had many, many, many conferences and um, sessions of bringing people together. We wrote a lot of stories, and we also tried to amplify a lot of voices. We tried the best of journalism is always about amplifying the voices of people who are not being heard and ultimately holding the people who are in power accountable. And so that's what we tried to do. And it was um, a, a real both pleasure and privilege to be doing that. And we grew EdSurge into a pretty big site. I think at this point, um, there's more than, I think, close to about 700,000 
unique visitors every month to the website and tens of thousands of people around the world who read the newsletters. And uh, it was an enormous um, privilege and pleasure and really fun. We sold Ed Surge at the end of last year to ISTE, which is the largest nonprofit association that serves teachers using technology. Mm-hmm. And the combination of the two missions was really good. ISTE is really devoted to trying to help teachers figure out how to use technology. And that's what Ed Surge has been doing too, um, with the added element that we brought kind of a big developer community to the table as well. And so um, I spent the first half of this year kind of really helping try to integrate those two groups. And, you know, like a lot of founders, once you kind of settle the people and the place in, um, it then becomes time to sort of say, well, you know, maybe I should sort of look for um, my next opportunity. And so that's what I did. So I am still uh, going to be a writer on Ed Surge. And uh, in fact, um, once this interview is done, I have to go back and try to finish some stories that I have promised my colleagues and friends. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, great terms. And I think that ISTE is an enormously important organization and particularly right now for educators trying to figure out how to use technology and what technology to use. But um it's also a good moment for me to kind of take a breath and take a pause and sort of say, okay, well, what, um, where else can I make a difference? And uh, so I'm afraid that we'll have to check back later to answer that. I'm only, as I said, two weeks into this, so um, <laughs> haven't really sort of figured out what that's going to be next. Great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Definitely. This is a time you know, we're really looking for, as educators, looking for the technologies that are going to work best um, for what we need to be doing. I think a lot of educators were thrust into a situation where suddenly they have to use a lot of technology that may or may not really have been built for education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the resources that you've built and that Estes built have been really, really important for educators to have a place to go and a resource and someone to look to for how to, how to navigate the new landscape, if you will. I think the Um, most important message that we always tried to share, and I think that ISTE also tries to share is to remind educators that they are the people in charge, right? That uh, there are a lot of different technology options now, and many of them have been designed with some eye towards the classroom, although it probably was the classroom of, 2019, not necessarily uh, wherever we're going right now. Um, but the key thing is for educators to remember that they have choice, they have voice, and that at the end of the day, they're the people who should be deciding what to use, that they shouldn't be feeling corralled into using something. They have a lot of choice. And kind of that was an important message that we were sending over and over. And by saying you have choice, that also means ask questions, push back, ask for more elements that will make the technology work for you. Absolutely. It's really important for educators to remember that they, they are the ones in charge. And you, you've been working with EdTech for a long time and looking at what's happening now. And, and you mentioned that the classroom of 2019 isn't the classroom of now or in the future. With where you've seen companies going and the organizations that you've been working with and what you see happening in education, what do you think are the next steps for education? Where do you think it's going? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously COVID and the pandemic has had an extraordinary impact on the entire world. There is no one who feels that the classroom of September is going to look like what it looked like last September. Schools across the country, across the globe, but let's stick to the U.S., are really working hard to come up with some combination of in-person and remote learning. And they're doing that both because they want to protect people in the short term. They want to make sure that uh, everyone stays as healthy, both staff as well as students and parents, families. But the second reason is obviously that we're all concerned that there'll be a second round of something. And I don't think that any educators want to feel as caught off guard as we were uh, in the first quarter this year when suddenly everything closed down. So for that reason, we are going to see a combination a hybrid of remote learning and in-person learning going forward. And there are a lot of different models. We're, I think everyone is still going to be testing out and exploring this. We're going to see some really interesting examples of this over the summer. There are a lot of different districts and schools that are trying to put in place some summer programs that will be ways of trying out different um, scenarios. Uh, for instance, there's a national summer school project that is really focusing on using kind of master teachers to do the, the sort of providing of great information and then really turning to local educators, working in small groups with local students, with their students to kind of take those ideas further. I think that that kind of creativity of really saying, how do we change what we do? If we kind of try to replicate what we used to do, we'll lose. So expect and really push to see a lot of different models of who is teaching when, how much student agency are we really trying to promote, how are we breaking up the time, all of these things. There's, we're really in an era of enormous experimentation right now. Yeah, I agree. And if, if we dig deeper into that, you know, lots of different schools and districts and organizations and countries are creating their own methods. Um, and a lot of it is a, a mix of less seat time and potentially more time online or more time doing other kinds of learning. One of the biggest concerns that I hear and that I keep seeing popping up is the social element and humans being social creatures. And so how do we continue to build those relationships and social structures as we move into more of an online world? Or is, is that possible? It's absolutely possible. We have to demand that the technology support that. That kind of comes back to that question of it's so important for users to kind of push back and to have a voice in what they want to see the technology support. You're absolutely right. Um, I spoke with some young women who were students in Brooklyn, New York, um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the girls, their high school girls, made a fascinating point. She is, um, her first language is Farsi. And she said, gosh, when I'm in the classroom, I raise my hand, I'm in the front all the time. Online, it's harder for me. I've got three different keyboards. One's in Farsi, one's either actually two were in Farsi and one's in English. I don't type as fast as other people do. So when people are trying to type questions into the chat bar, that doesn't work for me. We need to be rethinking what the structure and the design is of scenarios like this. You and I right now are on Zoom. 
And it has some inherent limitations for communication and certainly inherent limitations for just what you said, Tanya, the sort of social elements. But that's a design issue. We can rethink that. And so I think that we have to collectively demand that technologists actually really spend some time thinking this through. Yeah, I know. I know there are a few companies out there that are working on on those sorts of challenges and issues. And from one side, bringing in emotion and humanity into um, artificial intelligence and making it so that we it does feel human and not like a screen. Like I can see that you're a human and it's really nice to see you, but you're still <laughs> on a screen, you it's know. And so, <laughs> so you know, how do we change that? And another shift that I'm seeing in, in ideas into virtual reality, so that everybody is in their own space, but is together and feels more together in a virtual space. Because now, instead of being, you know, a flat screen, you're in actually in a three dimensional arena, which changes the feeling of everything. I think there's some important research that has to be done to get a sense of what is it? What are those cues that we're really using to feel more emotionally connected with people, right? And some of them may be, as you said, uh, sort of seeing you in three dimensions or feeling that you're sharing an environment. There may be other ones too. And uh, again, not an area that I'm, I'm super expert in. I think it's an enormous area for research. Here's another example. We've found that podcasts are enormously intimate, right? There's something very intimate about having someone like speaking in your ear. I mean, the folks who do the best podcasts, they feel like they're your friend and they're sitting on your shoulder and they're having this really, really thoughtful, interesting conversation with you. You feel really personally engaged. And yet there's absolutely no visuals involved with that. So what is it that, that, that's about the podcast that somehow feels intimate, personal, social, that somehow is kind of a little bit lost in the Zoom world? I did not to pick on Zoom in, in the, in our two dimensional flat screen approach. I don't know, but I think that there's a lot of potential to ask these questions. And these are questions that researchers haven't necessarily, with a few exceptions, haven't really spent very much time asking. And exploring, but we have to. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be really interesting to see what the research says and how designers take that and integrate it into more people-pleasing technology, I guess, people-connecting technology. But moving from that subject and moving back to something else that you said about student agency and how do we develop more student agency, there's a lot of talk around that and around student-centered learning. And right now, until the break, we were in a very passive education system where students sit, they listen, they take in information for the most part, and then they're required to spurt it back in some fashion to an educator. But now that's not entirely possible as we move to a blended model, as education changes, as there's fewer hours potentially in the classroom. So how do we shift from that kind of student-centered approach to more of a learner-centered approach? and really engage educators to push their students to be advocates of their education and involve that student agency and really ignite that love of learning, not just when they're with an educator, whether it's online or in person, but in the world around them. How can we as educators support that shift in thinking and in educating? Yeah. So 
I think that there's uh it's a great question and um a couple of thoughts on it. The first is that there have been some schools and you guys may be on that list as well who've really tried to push student agency. Um there's some terrific programs in Philadelphia. Um uh there's mm-hmm. uh you know even locally here uh Odyssey a small middle school has tried to kind of be much more project based for a long long time. So there definitely are a lot of experiments that we've seen over the last 10 years in particular that really are trying to open up for more student agency. Second thing is that sometimes I wonder whether it's that we have to permit or push students to have more agency or whether we just need to recognize that agency. We've seen in, you know, with some of the enormous tragedies of the last few years, we've seen enormous student agency. The students at Parkland were astonishing. They did more after that tragedy to articulate and share and, and try to change people's minds and hearts than anyone could have ever imagined, right? Some of the rallies that we've seen recently around Black Lives Matters have been entirely driven by students. In fact, I think one in Redwood City was started by high school students. So sometimes it's not clear to me whether it's that we need to push students to be more active or whether we as educators need to actually recognize and support their inherent desire to take action. So I think that there's a lot of reflection that we all have to do about how we do this. Again, I suspect that particularly this current generation is actually ready to be actors on the stage. And that some of what had happened over the last few decades was more keeping them in childhood longer rather than letting them be actors on the stage and making room for them to be actors on the stage. So I don't know how much of it is educating us and how much of it is (laughs) nudging them forward. But I think that both of those elements are relevant. That's what all educators say, right? They learn as much from their students as they're trying to impart to them. Absolutely. Definitely. And, And what you're saying is a theme that I'm hearing from a lot of different thought leaders that I've been talking with is listening to our students and supporting them And how do we kind of get out of our own way and help them to move forward in the challenges that they're taking on and be supportive and resourceful and help them to gain the skills that they need to be successful through those endeavors. But it's really stepping back and listening to our students, which quite honestly, I'm not sure we've done a lot of up until now when we've kind of had to because they're not with us all the time. So it's a, it's a really interesting shift. Have you had any students on your podcast? No. There you go. I haven't. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I did a podcast with a Stanford student recently, but I was her guest. She wasn't here, but yeah, that would be an interesting perspective for sure. And I know, um, uh, KQED is doing a whole program with youth right now and listening to youth and directed by youth and really figuring out and following what they're doing and asking more questions and doing more listening. And there's Youth Radio in Oakland, which has done a terrific job of amplifying student voice as well. So mm-hmm. the voice is there. I think 
as adults, we just need to actually be open to listening to it sometimes. Yeah. So looking a little more at your history, you've been a writer now for over 25 years in various <laughs> count, different directions. Let's not count there. <laughs> <laughs> for a while. You've been a writer for a long time. You have a lot of experience with this. Have you looked at writing a book? Oh, so, uh, you know, my husband is a writer as well. He's written five books. His most recent book was called You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Liberal Arts Degree. His name is George Anders, and uh, it's a terrific book, particularly if you believe in the power of liberal arts education. I think I have a healthy respect for what it takes to write books, having lived with five of them. And on the one hand, it's always tempting to uh, want to write a book. And I have a few ideas that I'm kicking around, but I think what I've always tried to be guided by is, do I have something to say that really adds to the conversation and adds to, tries to kind of move the community in a new direction? And so um, I think that's a pretty high bar. So when I feel that I've got an idea and I've got a proposal that's uh, ready to do that, then yeah, sure. In the meantime, I confess that I'm also hopelessly addicted to uh, murder mysteries. And so, you know, you can always write a murder mystery. Well, I, I think that you absolutely have a lot to say and a wealth of knowledge that people would eat up if you chose to share it in a book. You built an entire organization, an award-winning organization, by sharing knowledge among different people and connecting people and building you know, that ed tech resource space. And I'm sure that you have so much to share, that um, it would be whatever you were to write would be really, really interesting, even if it were a murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say one last thing, and this kind of goes back to the question of agency, right? One of the really fun and exciting elements of running Ed Search was we hired a lot of young people who were it was for them their first job out of college. And um, they didn't necessarily know what they wanted to do, and they didn't necessarily, um, weren't necessarily prepared to do <laughs> what we asked them to do. And yet by setting the bar high and sharing like mad, not only did they clear the bar, but in some ways, many, many ways, they went so far beyond what I had hoped and imagined that they were really the heart of what created, what became Ed Surge and what continues to be Ed Surge going forward. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of joy in trying to open up opportunities for people of all ages, whether they're middle school or post-college or wherever they are. And so just going back to your question of student agency, I think once again, it comes back to the adults kind of stepping out of the way and figuring out how to cheer on the energy and the inspiring ideas that young kids are really ready to tackle. I think I'm hearing some of the direction you might want to go next. <laughs> I'm hearing a lot of love of coaching and inspiring and amplifying voices and helping to lift others up into positions that exceed even your expectations and the things that are possible. And so I'm excited to see where you go next and where that might lead. Thank um, you. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on Ed Surge and on student agency, um, on the humanity of technology. 
and where we might go next. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate your time, Betsy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for what you're doing for your students and for the community overall. Really appreciate it. And now I've been challenged to find a student for the podcast. So that's going to be my <laughs> next goal. Like, how can we expand this from thought leaders into like everybody who's really involved in education? Right. They're thought leaders too. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Me too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.